spoken me. I went to sleep that night without knowing that it would be the last night I ever spent in that bed at my parents' house in London. Meredith, my mum shook me awake. The room was dark, making it obvious it wasn't morning yet, or not time to get up for school anyway. Mum, I mumbled in my half-asleep state. It's time to go. Everything I told you about those stories is true. It's time for you to leave us so you can train to be a protector. Your dad and I, we've done everything we possibly can to prepare you. First Charge is the first book in the Destiny Initiative series by Amanda Steele. The book can be purchased in paperback from Amazon. The e-book can also be purchased on Kindle, Kobo, Apple Books and many others. Spoken Thank you today for tuning in to Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up at the beginning of 2016 and as of recording has over 200 sessions in our archive. Although the podcast can be heard on Anchor, iTunes, Apple, Spotify, YouTube and literally 10 or 11 other networks, the full archive can be found at Spoken Label, all one word, spokenlabel.bandcamp.com. On Bandcamp, it is set as pay what you want. So you are entitled, if you wish, you can download it or stream it for nothing. But if you want to throw me a couple of pennies my way, it is always a term they're grateful to help me maintain the operating costs and future running costs for this podcast. Enjoy. Spoken Hi guys, Andy N, Spoken Label, back in the house and on the screen again today. Got a very special guest here today, a gentleman whose work I've been following for more years than I'm going to admit to remembering here because... I first came across Paul Sutherland's work uh, when he was involved in Dreamcatcher magazine, and that was when I was first in a workshop, which was 15 or 16 years ago. So it's a pleasure to have Paul with us today. So, Paul, would you like to introduce yourself to us? Tell everybody, obviously, where, where, do, where you came um, from and stuff from there. I'm uh, Paul Sutherland. Um, I was born in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada in 1946. Seven, therefore, you can see my, my white hair, my white beard. I'm now 73. I've been in the country since 1973. Wow. It was a very different country then than it is now. Um, then it was trying to hook on to Europe, and now it's trying to cut its its cables. Oh, but I was I've always written. I've written since I was 17. And I had my first books published in Canada, self-published, I should say. And then gradually, I came to this country. I worked with disabled children, adults, and adolescents. I went to York eventually, and I just became a part-time cleaner so I could spend my time writing. I eventually went to uh, York St. John's University, then called Ripon and York College. Um, and there I started Dreamcatcher, an independent learning unit. Um, and it's very interesting that both Dreamcatcher now in issue 42 and Aesthetica and all the success it has had has come from the same academic source. Very interesting. I got a, a first in English and history combined and Dreamcatcher got started and I met people through Dreamcatcher who took an interest in my own writing. And that led on eventually to publications. Um, 
and more and more work. Now I became a Lincolnshire's literature development officer. And I live in Lincolnshire now in Market Raisin. And I'm married. And in 2004, I became freelance. I became, I had my first major books published by someone else, not me. And I became a Sufi Muslim. Therefore, the prayer hat. Um, and that's about where I am now. I have had about 15 books published. I've edited about seven or eight more. Um, I've now retired, semi-retired, you can't really retire from writing, but I still run workshops if possible and so on. And here I am on Zoom. Yeah, brilliant there with that one. With MBN. Oh, yes. The legend in his own mind, right? (laughs) Okay. Now, we're here today to talk about your, uh, your most recent book, really, aren't we? Which is um, Children's Roots and Red Streamers. Now, first of all, then, where did the title for this book come from? And if anyone's wondering, obviously with audio today, Paul's actually showing a copy of the book up at the moment. <laughs> so where did the title of this book come from, then, Paul, first of all? Well, um, ever since I became estranged from my granddaughter in 2012, I have been uh, fascinated in trying to understand the relationships between adults and children. And they became continually, children became more and more the focus of what I, what I wrote about. In poems, in stories, in essays, And I've even written something called The Rights of the Child, which is unpublished, an essay about the problems in English courts, family courts, in trying to reconcile the different needs of the child with their mothers and fathers. And I began to feel more and more um, that the child was an independent entity with its own soul, heart, and feelings. And so I called this book Children's Roots, N-R-O-U-T-E-S, as their journeys through life, as their kind of challenges that they have to face. Um, And Red Streamers comes from the collection at the end of the book of miniature poems, um, a long extended ringa. Uh, which we call Red Streamers on basis of it being about the sun coming through thunderclap clouds. Uh, I started that with a friend years and years ago, 2000, and I can't remember. More years ago than you can remember <laughs> working out, yeah. Okay. That's becoming easier and easier, Andy. <laughs> I get you completely with that, yeah. Certainly like on the book itself, yeah, I, what I've read in the book, obviously I've got the download there's a free extract you can download it's about well, I think it's probably the first dozen or so pieces. And there is you're certainly right, there's an awful lot of image children about children in this book as well, certainly with it. Now also as well on the page on chappinpress.com, I know there's a couple of audio pieces you've done here as well. I want to ask you about one or two of these and particularly like my granddaughter Backles the Sea with a red plastic spade, which I actually love that piece when it was done originally on 
BBC Radio Lincolnshire. So, obviously, as I said, that one's obviously about your granddaughter. What was it about that memory? I'm guessing it's a memory. So what made you want to write that about that memory then? Well, it was just before we became estranged. Oh, and right, yeah. It's, it's possible that I had a premonition that that was going to happen because her mom and dad had divorced or going through divorce procedures. And there she was, um, quite distressed in some way, fighting the ocean as if she's fighting the tide of eventuality. You know, this little voice against these adults and what they desire and this little voice um, trying to be heard. It seems symbolic to me of, of children's, in a way, courage, um, because they have to be, uh, in my opinion, strong um, in some of these conflicts they get into. Imagine ch child refugees, how strong they have to be, and, and orphans. So there was something daring in a child's action, something innocent, but at the same time daring. And it's like they have endless hope. Um, and I think, and it was such a beautiful image, you know. I don't know if I said red, but it was a red plastic shovel she had. The waves are coming in like small mountains. Don't worry, I wasn't far away. I wasn't going to let her just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get, get I was a responsible dad, granddad, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, getting completely... I wanted to let her be a little bit, you know. I don't agree with these parents who rush in and try to stop a child from doing anything. You know, I just... As it turned out, she got soaked, and she <laughs> had to wear my coat, and I had to wear a blanket wrapped around <laughs> <laughs> oh, blimey. I bet, I bet, I bet you were flavour of the month then for a bit after that then, weren't you? <laughs> my wife and Peter had mixed feelings about my... <laughs> a child, Karen. Oh, yeah. No, it's... I think as well then, what, I like, what I've an interesting was in at the beginning of your book where you've got the quote on the fourth page, which is, to all children desperate for a home, desperate for home. It's like, from reading the book itself, there's I can get a lot of emotions and imagery on it, making back up, thinking back to my own nephew, talking about a nephew that's 12 now. And it made me think a lot of the way he was with primary school and growing up very, very young, which wasn't that long ago. I can see it from pieces in your book, like a day trip to, to a primary school. That brought a lot of emotions back to myself when I picked him up from school, wanted to come and help my sister and her husband out. And it's... I can see from this book, Paul, is there's a lot of emotion in this for yourself, really, isn't there? Do you think? Yes. Does I it... had to. Um, I had to take the eye out of some of the poems. There were just too many eyes. <laughs> yeah. And I just had to remove some of them. Um, because yes, I was. I was really involved. Yeah. Yeah, you can see there's a lot of emotion in this book for you. How does it compare to your like previous few books before that? Then, because like I said is. This is such an in-depth topic to your heart. Was it quite a difficult book to write this one? Um, did you find? 
I I rarely actually write a book. I write, and at some point, I think I can collect those bits and pieces oh, and make right, them into yeah. something. Get, That's you know, a collection. Yeah, it's come naturally then. Basically, I, hasn't it? I'm yeah. always, I'm always writing in a way. Um, and for a time, after I, like I say, after I became forcefully separated, is the legal term, from my granddaughter. Uh, I was fixated on writing about that situation in various perspectives. So it had a particular meaning to me, but you see, it has to me, the writing has to be art. Yeah, of course. It has to be shaped and crafted. And that process may take time. So it's roughly 10 years that a lot of the stuff, uh, a lot of it was written about 10 years, eight years ago. And it's had time to be worked on before I thought it could come together and be something that yeah. would stand on its own. Okay, completely as well. Um, I hope, I like to think I put my heart into everything I write. Um, and I have a, a, quite a range of interests from history to obviously spirituality, being a Muslim, uh, being a Sufi Muslim, having been a Christian before that, um, been always interested in spirituality, whether it's been as a teenager, instead of going to a party, going to a church and sitting on the back and seeing what's happened, you know, what's happening. Because I did have um, extraordinary experiences now and then as a teenager. Um, about otherworldly things. But I'm equally interested in history very much. And um, as coming from Canada, and what I learned at university, uh, post-colonial uh, struggles interest me. I'm very drawn to them as well, which you mostly find in, in the new and selected poems. That and in Journeying, which has just been released again, by Valley Press. Now, whether that means that's the newest or not, I don't know. That's a really interesting question. I was going to ask you about that next, actually. I must have been. So. <laughs> <laughs> if someone's revived, is that the newest or is that just an old, you know? Is it an new old, or is it old or new? Or I mean, I don't know. <laughs> if, these things, if these things have any kind of consciousness, you know, if I have any kind of consciousness, about the process, what I can say is at some point that bridge collapses and I can't get back to that style. I don't know how to get back to it. All I can do is keep writing and going forward. I think you have to as a writer. And gather it up once in a while. If someone's kind enough to accept my rakings and put them into a heap and put them between two covers, well, thank you. <laughs> Much appreciated, I would say. Yeah, I, I had the same situation there myself because about eight years ago, I got offered a nice contract to write a children's poetry book, and I hadn't written a children's poetry in about 10 years. And I, like you said, I tried writing, but I realized it was then, so I couldn't go back to it I, as a writer. But you have to just keep moving forward, don't you? So, yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, completely there. Yeah, it's really hard. I, you know. 
If someone said, oh, write another journey, I wouldn't have a clue how to start. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, a journey, it'd be a different sort of journey, as I would say, isn't it? So, yeah, wish you on as a writer naturally, definitely. So, so I take it then, obviously, um, do you have any plans what's going to be happening? Oh, any ideas where your writing's going next at the moment, then, have you? Would you like, do you think you've got another collection on the way? Or are you, are you I'm ready now? Yeah. Well, um, that's a good question. I seem to be much more unfocused and writing about what inspires me in a kind of very broad way at the moment. You know, um, I was listening to people speaking um, the case for the T.S. Eliot Award. And one of them, Glenn Maxwell, said he gathered together his best work. And I thought, is that really where I should go next and not think in terms of thema thematic uh, books, but in terms of a collection of what I think is best, which may have a wide range of different subjects. Yeah. I think you could argue when you stage out your career sometimes, it's, you go out, I think it's time to ask yourself, is that the direction to go? It's like, so obviously you've been writing, what, for 45 years now, haven't you? So it's like, would that be your way? Yes. Or, would you, or would you want to be carrying on good and go back together? Yeah, very hard to judge. So only, only the writer knows the answer to that in my philosophy. I do, I do depend on um, other people's sort of, other people's uh, response, you know. Um, to some extent, I am affected by that, um, but not entirely. But I am, I am aware that um, if certain things are valued, um, that then maybe I should focus a, a little bit more on that. Uh, for example, I've had, I don't want to sound bragging, but I've had considerable success through my Islamic writing. You know, selling a thousand copies of poems on the life of the Prophet Muhammad Salam, and it going into a second second printing is wow. you know I can't ignore things like that. Round of applause straight away. I didn't know that. <laughs> Excellent. No, yeah, yeah. You can't ignore it, and it's it's. I think it's the fine balance, isn't it, between obviously what creatively satisfies you, and also even you're looking at that sort of thing like that, thinking, but that's done really well. Also, yeah. also, Andy, I can't go back and write those poems again. Again, I have no idea how that inspiration came together over a, a period of forty days, and that was yeah, it's a different stage of your it. life. Different stage of your life. I think it always is like, like it was my case certainly I was. I think so. Yeah, I came diabetic ten years ago. Yeah, and, I uh, think so. When I came diabetic, the way I looked at life. It changed like that and over about 40 days, like your situation, you telling me, was. And it's you just have to keep moving onwards and half the time. So, yeah, definitely agree with that one. We had both good luck with it, definitely. So, <laughs> that one, so definitely now. Um, I was going to ask you then, obviously, how's lockdown been where you are at the moment? And has it has that impacted on your writing very much? Well, last year I did undertake writing things I call the plague diaries. Um, and they were in a different, <laughs> a different uh, mode than I had written before because I was trying to be more tongue-in-cheek. They've had an influence on me, definitely. The, uh, the lockdowns have had an influence on me. 
Um, I've kind of left that project now for a while. But what I came to was I was writing about the people that helped me survive in my life. I didn't want to leave them out anymore. So it was about many different people, um, teachers, uh, girlfriends, um, uh, people I met when I was in Canada, especially in Canada and early in this country who helped me survive. And I just thought the theme of the lockdowns and everything, the kind of counter side of that or the dark side of that is survival. How do we survive? Um, how did we get here? How long, you know, what opportunities, sorry, not what opportunities, but what threats occurred from which we may not have survived? And how did people help us survive? I mean, okay, in, in market raising where I am, the threat is limited, but still everything is locked down. It's, it's very strange to walk down the middle of markets, market raising on a Friday night and not see pubs open and people pouring out or standing on the you know, curb. And, but I'm not particularly inspired by this, to be honest with you. Um, I'm inspired more by how it touches me personally over my life, these particular moments where I could see that someone really made a difference to me. Yeah, they'll get you completely. I think that's what, as a writer's, it's forced a lot of us. It's like inward reflection almost more, isn't it? So I think, I think so. Yeah, I think, I think that's what it's done. Yeah. yeah, that's what you've done to a lot of writers. It took you took you took everybody in sometimes a three hundred sixty degree complete different turn. So and it's you've thrown everything up in the in the air nearly. So yeah, threw you completely over that fall. So that's pretty well all my questions, mate. So if people want to find out more about you, where are the best going? Um, well, I have a website called www, um, I think it's author, Paul Sutherland, or Paul Sutherland author. I can't remember at this moment. Will you please look it up? <laughs> yeah, because I'll do it now. Um, and if you just put my name into the search engine, you will come up with stuff. One of my friends once said, you're famous. I put your name in the search engine and you were on uh, 10 pages, you know. So, yeah, I, um, found, I found loads of us of it. So, yeah. Yeah. You, everyone's on well, Paul's website. It, it is author Paul, paulsubland.com, just to confirm. <laughs> yeah. I think I'd like people to go to Chaffinch Chaffinch Press as well. Yeah. Um, I've got I've got your Chaffinch. page up for that. That's what I heard you yeah. talk about. Valley Press. You know, Jamie, Jamie McGarry at Valley Press and David Cavanaugh at uh, Chaffinch Press have been very supportive. I, I really like people to go and look at their sites and nothing else. Yeah, I'll make a note to that for you, definitely. On that, so, it's no problem. That, that'll get linked as well, definitely. And we'll get these put on the, put on the right up for your polls, so not a problem. So, right, okay, well, both take a quick break here and we'll come back in a minute. We'll get Paul to do a few poems for us. So. Hang around because I'm looking forward to this. Thank you again, Paul, and we'll see you on Spoken Mail. Hi, guys. Still here with Paul. He's going to do some poems Over to you, Paul. My granddaughter battles the sea with a red plastic spade. 
Dig deep, my daughter, on the shoreline where sand is slick as a whale's tail, and hurl the water back in each breaker's face. Fight long and calm, without too much dancing and giggling, bend to your task. Who knows if you will defeat the waves or not? Watch out, my daughter. The combers are tall as you. The sea may tumble you over like driftwood, soak you through head to foot. Be wise, my sweetheart. Gather all the water you can in your small spades hollow. Who knows when the waves will flee beyond the horizon? Fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Paul. Brilliant stuff. I'm, I'm glad you've done that one as a starter today. So great stuff, mate. Okay. Um, one of the themes, you know, that's come emerged for me over the years has been going to other cultures and writing about events in other cultures. And um, I have spent time in India. And this is called, this is a prose poem. And it's called On Kolam Beach. Kolam is a city in the southwest of India in Karla, uh, the region of Karla. And I was standing on the beach watching the, these boys fly their kites. Standing on sand, I watched as twilight kids hoisted kites high, higher than imagined. The colorful stretched rectangles shuddered with paper tails shimmering, lines bold and extended towards disappearance. Nights climbed above food booths, which cast halos into engulfing darkness. A short afterglow, a respite had passed. Flyers persisted, running the shore's length. The moon urging light against smog, kites soared above skimming haze, only half following. The boys could not see to where their created things ascended. With fantastic skills, they had made flimsy designs that towered above worlds. Space hushed, no airliners, fighters. Kites ruled, trembled, swooping until regaining altitude. I sank into the sand from the pleasure of observing a hundred danced above the percussion of pounding surf. The beach tilted against the Arabian Sea. Signs in Hindi and English numbered deaths of bathers. Some had misread the undertow that hauled the earth into chaotic water. The kite displayers aimed aspirations toward the night, not conquering ocean. Yet those determined youngsters, I guess, would companion anyone who fenced with the waves. My disturbed senses embrace the kite art, 
The shaken acrobats, high above electric wires, echoed my emotions. To an awe of dreaminess, the kites turned into rapt creatures. For the boys, a new sky full of fragile eagles. Brilliant. Great stuff, that, Paul. Hey, so how, long were you, how long were you in India for, then? You were there. I've been there since 2014, three times, for periods of about uh, two months to 40 days. Really? I know um, my brother... Bro yeah, that's different. My, my brother lived, worked in, in Bangkok for about 10 years ago, for about nine months he did. And it always sticks in my head when he tells me that, when he was over there. Bombay, Bombay actually. And when he was there, he was running a call centre, he always tells me, the hottest food he actually had there wasn't a curry. It was spaghetti bolognese. I always, always, always remember that, dude. So, <laughs> brilliant. Oh, anyway, Paul, back to you, mate. Well, another uh, prose poem which um, relates to my time of caring for disturbed children is about uh, Susie Tank. I changed her name. Um, she loved chocolates, but she only loved to nibble on them. She didn't want to eat one whole, though. Unnecessary. <laughs> Just a taste one was enough. And on one of our expeditions, this was in the Lake District, we went to Wordsworth's ancestral home at Tidal Water. And she just and she had some a wonderful experience there. Special children in care. Susie Tank. Susie like chocolate, not scoffing, nibbling. She, 10 years old, left tooth marks in dark brown blooms in the bowl at birthdays and holidays. Centerpieces were guarded by co-workers, as the carers called themselves. She didn't speak, giving a secretive quality to attacks. Her rigid frame belied the speed of actions or displays of disapproval. Attempts to teach or socialize had marginal effect. Her swiftness disturbed the ambience co-workers hoped would extend through the big house, a garden of perennials lining a path from the child-resistant gate. Indoors, Susie found corridors for her to curl into a ball and somersault in rage. Some feared she might scream off an edge and spin downstairs, but she knew when to stop. After an exhibition without vanity or coyness, she held her hands in two V's over her eyes, brown, reversing her hands so the palms stared out. Susie's tour de force occurred when the community visited the ancestral home of William Wordsworth, bridal water at Easter. Dancing daffodils flourished that had inspired Dorothy Wordsworth, which her brother converted to poetry. By strollers with poetic airs visiting the famous estate, Susie leaped a short, dark-haired tiger into hosts of daffodils and began to devour yellow petals, stems, and all. Before a keller intervened, the damage was dramatic. 
peaceful onlookers stood open mouths, a state Susie grasped. She didn't sniff, but wolfed down flowers, causing concern. But it was agreed her constitution was iron-plated, no need to worry. The ethics of visiting a site of national interest had been shattered. Co-workers retired with the group to their minibus and drove back to where collective lunacy made sense. Maybe Susie's untamed absorption reflected in a strange way the origins of poetry. Fantastic, again, brilliant stuff that. And really nice, actually. Each of your pieces you've done so far, Paul, have all been very you, but very different, if that makes sense, because it shows all different sides to you. So that's a great story, that one. Brilliant stuff. Okay, on to number four. Uh, number four already now. Yeah, we read uh, um, this is a, a poem called The Orphan Birds. I worked in India at Matadine Academy. Um, and the, the academy is academic, but it has um, schools for the blind, schools for orphans, uh, technical uh, facilities, uh, as well as, you know, academic. Uh, people have academic pursuits, but there's an element of caring, which more resembles to me medieval universities as it used to be in Europe. And I love this because, sorry, I love this poem. I love the experience because the orphans had an understanding of these birds that would be abnormal. They had their situation somehow made them understand what these birds required. The orphans' birds. At Matadine Academy, in the blistering light, young male orphans announced them lovebirds, joined as one on separate perches. And here, affectionate chirp, chirping, chirping trolls. They feed every green and yellow budgerigar. If their wings stop quivering long enough, with screwed up foliage through the cage's wire, each opening smaller than an infant's finger. The birds with a scissor action snip the green close by the fig tree with its enveloping shade. The boys, though, understand those fruiting branches are no source for the lovebirds' nutritious leaves. Ooh, excellent again. Really good stuff, that, right? <clears throat> really good. Um, right, we're on to fifth one now. Last one now, Paul. We all gave it up. Okay, this is called Dreamt to Slip Slide Across the Roughened Sheet, Dare to Creep Up Close to Its Lean To. River Goddess smiled through her open currents, cast off, left him on the ice, didn't take his feet 
over her ceaselessly fizzing lip. He returns, a traveler's vista in his gaze, far less sturdy afoot, observes again the fuming descent, then an evergreen gorge shepherding its thaw-fed water towards his remembered home, slowing between white moraine, thundering drop distancing to a murmur. Against reason, the pain of someone disowned seizes him as the melt swirls on. I love the movement at the end of that, that sphinx is swirling on. It's like the journey's carrying on still. Oh, yeah. great stuff. Been brilliant today. Thank you for that, Paul. Been a pleasure. So hang around. I need to put Udi off mic, as not as I always tell everybody. Appreciate today, Paul. It's been a fantastic session. I've really, really enjoyed this. And I've learned a lot from you today as well. So you're great. Right, guys, girls. This is Andy and Sandy Goat. Stay safe, guys. See you all soon. Spock on me.